Hello, and welcome to this podcast. In this episode, you will hear Dr. Rick Gosen, Chairman, Advisory Board, ELO Group, and Strategic Counsel for Nicola Wealth, interview Emeritus Professor of Mathematics at the University of Oxford, John Lennox. This conversation occurred in an ELO webinar hosted on April 22, 2020, entitled The Corona Crisis, How Should Christians Think, Act, and Lead? Uh, John Lennox is a professor emeritus at the University of Oxford and author of many great books on science and faith. In addition, he's an adjunct instructor at the ELO Entrepreneurial Leaders Program, which is offered annually in August at Wycliffe Hall, University of Oxford. This year, the program will be occurring from August 16th to 22nd, and we're hopeful and prayerful that we will be able to proceed uh, despite the present circumstances. Uh, Most relevantly to our conversation today, uh, John is the author of a recent book titled, Where is God in a Coronavirus World? Uh, This book is now being prepared to be available in 23 translations and has generated a lot of interest. Uh, Tessa will post information as to where you can get the book, but of course you can find it on Amazon and other online sources. All right, so before we get to all the questions, let me just ask, uh, John, you're in Oxford, uh, UK. Just briefly, what are things like in Oxford and the UK at this present time? Well, my wife and I are locked down in the pleasant Oxfordshire countryside, the sun is shining. It's about 17 or 18 degrees centigrade. The weather has been beautiful, but it's a silent world. I've just been out for my daily 40 to 50 minute walk and I met no one. And there's something almost surreal about the surroundings, but being ancient, as you can all see, I find that being locked down means I'm getting an enormous amount of work done. I haven't even got the excuse to go into the university. So I'm doing a lot of writing at the moment and many interviews like this. This is, I think, the third session today. I've just been, believe it or not, on with Fox News. And every day around the world, people are dialing in to discuss the issues that this raises a whole spectrum of things. But we're very thankful for neighbours who do shopping, although we can go out once a week to get things and doctors delivering medicines. And I just am full of admiration for the medical people who are risking their lives for all of us. Well, no, that's great to have that context. Now, one, I'd like to ask a few questions about Uh, to provide a bit of context before we jump into the whole issue of the current coronavirus pandemic. Now, you've been speaking uh, to secular interviewers and Christian interviewers about the present situation. But in fact, there's been a lot of context in your own personal background that's prepared you to be an articulate advocate. Now, perhaps you can describe to people so you're a professor, a professor emeritus uh, of... That simply uh, means that I'm old. <laughs> so so how, how do you feel you've been prepared in terms of your calling 
to address this issue today? It goes back to childhood, really, that my parents were very unusual. I grew up in a country that was, when I was a teenager, beginning to have a lot of sectarian violence, Northern Ireland. And my parents were believers, but rather unusually, they were not sectarian. And that's where really my attitude to my fellow men and women started. My father employed in his small family store, which is closed now, of course, the supermarkets took over, employed equally across the division of Protestant Catholic. And it cost him several bombings. And I, I once asked him why he did it. He said, well, because I do believe that all men and women, no matter what they believe, are made in the image of God and therefore worthy of respect. And that was a huge preparation for entering into debate and learning to respect people with whom I, I disagree. The second thing was the opportunity to go to Cambridge where I was able to interact with different worldviews. And because I was doing a very rigorous and pretty difficult subject, mathematics, I was interested from boyhood in the relationship with mathematics to science and then science to the wider, big questions. Does science tell us everything or do we need other inputs? and being taught the value of history, psychology, and all the other disciplines, I very rapidly found myself in university engaged in the intellectual defense of Christianity. And uh, that went right through the years, and I started lecturing because people asked me to. And uh, in the end, I had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in the German and Russian-speaking worlds where I was able to see atheism, particularly in the Marxist world, and what effect it had on people. And then I got onto the public stage and debating people like Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Peter Singer and so on. So all of that, I think, has prepared me to engage, not that I've got all the answers, because I certainly have not but to try to take other people's questions seriously and really try to get inside them and understand them rather than simply um, dealing with them superficially and simplistically. And one of the great opportunities is one that you've offered me mm. to, to meet uh, your friends at ELO. And I, I have very much enjoyed teaching at the, at the summer school in Oxford, I, I must say, and like to publicly thank you for that. Mm. And just one thing, Rick, you will see on my head at each side of my ears, there are two horns. And I think perhaps I should switch those off. And because they may well irritate the audience. So would you pardon me for five seconds? Oh, okay, we will do that. This, this will demonstrate that this is indeed a live event uh, because if it was pre-recorded, we'd probably uh, cut out a segment with uh, John. So, so you've been able to see John Lennox with horns and now without horns. <laughs> yes, I think that's better actually, if you don't mind. Now, now just related to what you mentioned, um, how has C.S. Lewis been 
an example because of course he did those famous radio broadcasts upon which mere christianity is based which was explaining faith to a wider audience so how how has he been perhaps a model well he gave those so far as i well i nearly said as far as i remember but i don't because i wasn't born he gave those in wartime but my father had come across uh, some of his books and he gave me i think mere christianity and it was a revelation to me the quality of the logic i've always loved logic because of mathematics and i just reveled in what he wrote and what was very interesting was he let me into the mind of a former atheist i have not known what it is to be an adult and not a believer a christian believer that is so i needed a mentor that could give me some insight as to how he moved from atheism very slowly but very surely uh, to Christianity and when I got to Cambridge in 1962 he was just about to give his last lectures I didn't know that then he was very ill but I went to some of those lectures and I have a very vivid memory of his lecturing but ever since if I want to have a humbling effect on myself all I need to do is read Lewis's brilliant stuff and I just throw up my hands and say, why can't I write like that? Now, providing a Christian perspective in our present secular society, you know, as you've been doing, you know, when interviewed, uh, what type of reception do you get uh, from secular media in terms of a Christian perspective or interpretation of present events? Well, it varies greatly. In our country, we don't have the whole network of radio stations, private radio stations that you have. And it's very rare for me to get opportunities to come on the national media, although I did have one last Sunday. They did the national radio in the United Kingdom, and I'm going to be on this Sunday as well in Northern Ireland, my, my home country, but relatively little in um, radio and television, but some. More I get on the continent, oddly, and the present situation has meant that quite a few secular radio stations and newspapers, I did an interview yesterday with Croatia, for example, and one with New Zealand a couple of days ago, there is interest in having a Christian perspective because I'm told that uh, I was talking, uh, giving an interview to Transworld Radio and they have got, I think, 220 countries. And they were saying that in the last few weeks, there has been a, a considerable upswing in people who want answers to, to the big questions mm. and particularly Christian answers. So well, there are opportunities and of course, I publish books that get read by secular people and I constantly get letters from them. So uh, something is getting out there. Well, and that relates to some of the questions posed and what we'd like to focus on a bit later in this sure. webinar. Uh, but one question I want to ask before we look at the poll is, 
you mentioned to me previously that writing this book may have been one of the most important things you've done in your your long uh, and illustrious career. Why would you say that? Because I, I think how it happened was this. I'm a mathematician, as you know, though not a statistician, but I do know about exponential growth. And for some reason, when I began to see what was happening around the world, my reaction was, this is going to grow at a speed that's going to scare people silly. And surely, having spent my life trying to articulate Christianity into difficult situations, the last of those really was the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand, where I arrived just a couple of days after it happened and had to speak whether I liked it or not, all my lectures were changed, radio, television, secular, Christian, and so on, on earthquakes, why? And I just sat down and felt impelled to write. So I wrote constantly, many hours a day for a week, and submitted it to a publisher who had it printed. I sent it on Saturday night, and he had it in print by Wednesday morning. Mm. So it was a fantastic effort on, on their part. And of course, I didn't have time to put all the nuances and things in it I'd like to, but I really did feel I wanted to not answer all the questions because I can't do that, but to give people something to think about that might retain a self sense of proportion, but also offer not a simple solution, but a glimmer of hope. And that's why Where is God in the Coronavirus uh, was written. Mm -hmm. No, that's great. Uh, now, Tessa, if you can put up the poll results, we had uh, had a poll going and we should be able to see the most uh, popular question. So um, yeah. it looks like it's how should Christians respond to this pandemic so maybe just to put it a bit more broadly so the pandemic obviously is creating a lot of uh, economic emotional physical suffering uh, how do how should christians respond maybe in terms of what they articulate about it and what they practically do well let's think about the second thing first what people practically do and whether they're Christian or not, I would like to register my absolute admiration for the medical fraternity, uh, doctors, nurses, medical orderlies, and auxiliary industries that are helping for the work that they are doing. And Christians, atheists, pantheists, and everybody else are mixing together to do this. And if you ask why, it's because they are moral beings I believe, made in the image of God. And therefore, they're getting involved in this practical example of loving their neighbors. Now, some of us, like myself, are not medics. And I'm in the highly vulnerable group, and so is my wife. So we're locked in. And there are people, Christian and non-Christian, who are delivering groceries, delivering medicines, and all this kind of thing. And we've even got cottage industries going in the UK making gowns because there's a shortage. Tragically, we're unprepared for this. A shortage of PPE to protect the doctors and nurses. So 
reaction in terms of practical help is enormously important. And then I would say the important thing that I have noticed if you're locked in is seeking to communicate with people that you maybe haven't talked to in years. And I suddenly found I was looking up old emails and um, phone records and things like that and diaries and phoning people I hadn't talked to maybe for 20 years. And the effect has been quite dramatic and embarrassing actually in a way because people say I haven't heard from you for years but then at the end of the conversation they say you know this has really made my day and I feel that all of us and I'm sure you all do this anyway you're not only reaching out to your families and that's enormously important keeping the conversation with children and relatives going when they're feeling it some of our children their jobs are in a fragile situation and therefore they need regular encouragement. Others in teenage, they can't go to their schools, the high school, or they can't do the examinations on which university entrance is based. And as thinking of what it was like when I was at that stage, that, that's a horrendous setback for many young people. So there's a lot of counselling we can do. Counselling sounds a rather patronising word, but helping people by speaking to them. You see, mm -hmm. let me put it this way, Rick. Looking at this thing, there are two reactions people have. One is to be filled with questions. Now, often people who are filled with questions, they might be suffering, but usually they're observing the suffering. They're not suffering themselves. But the people who are suffering are full of what I call emotional and personal questions. They're longing for a hug. What must it be like to die alone in an intensive care unit without your loved ones being able to touch or, or kiss you goodbye? That's terrible. So people need great emotional support. So I think it really is a big thing to use the social media as well as our old-fashioned telephones and keep in touch not only with families but people we may have forgotten for years. Now as an author and a writer and I hope some kind of a thinker I felt that one contribution perhaps I could make that not everybody could make was to get some thinking out there into the public space which is why I contributed this book. But you know, looking back in the past, it's interesting that some of those early plagues, and they were so far, far more devastating than the current plague, actually led to a great spread of Christianity. And I'm sure you're all aware, but it is important that it was the Judeo-Christian legacy, the biblical legacy that led to the foundation of hospices and hospitals. And we shouldn't be ashamed of that. It seems to me to be enormously important, especially today, that this has been a Christian contribution to the world. And mm. the dedication of Christian medics has been spectacular through history, not to take away from the dedication of other medics from other worldviews. Mm -hmm. So that yeah. is how I would start uh, on answering that question. Well, related to that question, do you think 
a situation like this coronavirus pandemic that is an opportunity to have people focus on the bigger questions of life in terms of what's important, what's the purpose of my life, given the situation, whereas they might not have focused on that previously. Yes, I think that's important. Now, your question, I don't remember its exact phrasing because I find it difficult to read and think at the same time. And I've just observed people are asking me to type answers. I can't do that, folks. Yeah. Uh, at the yeah. same time as concentrating. I, I am not that... Uh, half of my brain has disappeared at the age of 76. So I do apologize <laughs> no. to you. Yeah. Ask the questions through uh, Rick and yeah. Tessa. No, I'll, I'll, just to be clear, Tessa mentioned it, but uh, the, uh, don't direct, the, the questions being posed, I'll be looking at them. We'll pose the ones we can. Oh, that's that, that's but, absolutely But fine. John won't be answering questions directly from people. I believe Tessa mentioned that earlier. So I'll be asking questions. I'll scan through the Q&A. Uh, and we'll get to as many questions as we can. So there just was a nuance. There was a nuance in that question. Can you read it to me again? That first yeah. question. So, do you think a crisis like the one we have now is this something that, uh, in a sense, forces people to think about ultimately what's important in life, whereas maybe previously they hadn't been. Uh, led to, to focus on those those big life issues. Absolutely. I, I think that is the case, increasingly the case. And it, it's interesting to think into that issue because when I got to New Zealand, I noticed that a number of religious people were saying, look, this is the judgment of God and, and you're all uh, guilty of something, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I thought, just a moment, when we start to arrogate to ourselves the position of knowing and second guessing what God has done, I noticed the effect of that on, on the culture. And it was not people turning to God, it was people getting very angry with the folk that said things like that and saying, Who do you think you are? And what I've discovered is that. There's an incident in the New Testament that helps unpack a lot of this. And it's a very brief incident. It's quite remarkable. Uh, for those of you interested, you can read it uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. It's where Jesus was on the Temple Mountain in Jerusalem. And the crowd, somebody said to him, you realize, Lord, that this is the place where there was a massacre. Pilate and his soldiers beat to death or murdered a number of worshippers when they were offering their sacrifices. And Jesus then said a very interesting thing. He said, yes. And there was also the tower at Silwam in a different part of the city that fell and killed 18 people. Mm -hmm. Now, there are the two kinds of what we call evil, rather misleadingly, moral evil, the massacre. Mm -hmm and naturally even the collapse of a tower. But what he said about those is fascinating. He said, do you think that these people were sinners above everybody else? Mm -hmm. And he said, no, they were not. And that for me is one of the most important reactions that when we see a tragedy, whether small scale or large scale, we cannot deduce 
that this is coming specifically because the people hit by it are worse than other people in terms of their moral behavior or whatever. Mm. We have Christ's word from that. Now that's one side, but now we come to the side that's represented by your question. He said, I tell you that except you all repent, you shall all likewise perish. Now, what does that mean? I don't think it means that Jesus was saying, watch out because you're either going to be massacred or a tower is going to fall on you. But what he was saying is, look, think about what this means. You're mortal. You could walk out of here and be hit by a bus. You could be killed by cancer or polluted water or COVID-19. Think about the bigger issue that death raises and the whole God question. And are we ready to meet God? And have we thought about God? And here we are in Europe. We don't even have the word God in our nearly 1,000 pages of constitution. And certainly, let's go back to Lewis, because as usual, he says something very sensible. He says, pain is God's megaphone uh, shouting at us to wake up. And it seems to me that it's having that effect. It's leading people, particularly in the, in the isolation, to really think about their mortality. And many of my friends, until something big hits them, they say, I did not really believe I was mortal. I thought I was going to live forever. Mm. And I don't like to talk about silver linings. I think that's very dangerous talk, as if it justifies mm. the whole thing. And do you think it's quite, uh, John, do you think it's quite important to distinguish the nuance between uh, the megaphone versus God's punishment? Oh, very, very important. Very important because Jesus pointed out that these were not punishments for sin. And he did that in the case of the blind man in John 9. Now, that's also interesting because the disciples seem to have got some sort of karma thinking into their minds because this blind man was begging and they asked him who sinned that this man should be born blind did he sin well that was absurd logically or did his parents sin and he said neither in other words this idea and it's a cruel idea of course and i i heard it a lot in new zealand let these people alone. They're suffering because of something that happened in a past life. And if you alleviate their suffering now, that'll just mean in the next life they have to suffer more. Now, I think we can leave that one. It, it, it is cruel. But I think it's enormously important to realize two things. Firstly, it is possible that people suffer because of their sin. That's pretty obvious because we can do things, we can drink too much and ruin our health and we're suffering because of our misbehavior. That's very obvious. And it happens uh, to all of us, I suspect, at some time or other. But we need to be so careful when we extrapolate that to other people. Uh, what I mean by that is, we know what's going on in our own minds. I don't know what's going on in any of your minds, but I, I know something about my own life. And the questions that I would ask myself are, okay, if this is causing me to think of the fact that 
I have to meet God perhaps sooner rather than later because I'm in a highly vulnerable uh, zone. Have I really uh, made the right preparation? So the God question, salvation, forgiveness, all of those things come into very sharp focus, I think. Well, one, one point I'd like to highlight actually relates to something you mentioned in one of our uh, summer uh, classes where we were discussing how you engage with a secular culture. And you had made a comment that we almost have to take a, a, a winsome approach or uh, present the view without being judgmental or overbearing or condemning. So maybe you can just share a bit as we try to communicate a Christian perspective on what's happening, how to do that, because you had experience debating Dawkins and all these atheists and being in all these different contexts. So how do we convey the message from a Christian standpoint in an effective manner? Well, I suspect that the, you're right about the winsomeness. And one of the most winsome ways, I believe, of engaging with people is to give them fewer answers and ask them more questions. Because we all love people who will listen to us and ask us questions. And one way in at a time like this is to ask people questions about how they're reacting to it. Do they have any resources that help them? And instead of rushing in with what we feel the answer is, take time to explore what really is going on deep down. Because that's where important relationships mm -hmm. uh, develop. There's another incident which is hugely important in the New Testament, a reaction to tragedy, and it's only a little tragedy. But then a pandemic is comprised of millions of little tragedies. And the story in John 11 um, of Mary, Martha and Lazarus, the man that died and the sisters were distraught. But those sisters, Martha and Mary, were as different as chalk from cheese. When Jesus eventually came, having allowed the man to die, and that, of course, raises a huge question, uh, Martha said to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, it was his social distance that created the problem, which resonates with today. Mm. And she started talking to him about the resurrection. But Mary was devastated. She was emotionally distraught, and she came out asked exactly the same question in the same words. It was an implied question. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But she was weeping. And Jesus didn't say a word. He just wept with her. And it's that kind of differential diagnosis of sensitivity that we need to show to other people. Is this person breaking their heart? And do they need a shoulder to weep on? Well, then we'd be better to weep than to come out with a theological platitude. So I think that's right, that winsomeness, befriending people to my mind is the key. Rather than zeroing in with a pre-thought out spiritual agenda that you're going to foist on them no matter what they say. I think just listening, the Lord listened, and I was taught a long time ago 
that I had two ears and one mouth and I should try to use them in that proportion, which I'm not doing at the moment in this webinar, but then that's your fault. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so one question would be in terms of praying with people, are we praying that they can endure the suffering more effectively or that the suffering will be removed. So in other words, a question that we were, that I received on the Q and A, um, should we be praying for a cure? And, and that's God's answer versus praying for a greater understanding of the nature of pain and suffering. And how do well, we- poss Possibly both. You see, Jesus healed people in his day. And I have no doubt that God heals. But what is very clear, even in the time of the New Testament, is that there's no guarantee, however much we pray, that we're going to be healed. One of the people that, from a rational perspective, would have deserved, if that's the right word, healing more than anybody else, was the Apostle Paul. He had some real problem with his eyesight and he was a writer and an author and it must have been desperately painful. And other Christians said to him, they'd have given him the right eyes if it would have helped. And what God did answer the prayer, but not by healing him, but by saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Now that's a tough one, but it means that I cannot, and it's a very dangerous thing to do that, give people any sort of guarantee that they're going to come through this. But I can certainly pray because it's a natural instinct that, that God may do something very real in their lives and either enable them to understand why he's allowing this to happen, like he did to Lazarus, he let the man die. Mm -hmm. And he let many of us die. It might not be of COVID-19, it might be in a bus accident. But nevertheless, we pray with people that they sense that we're bringing them nearer to God rather than parroting some formulaic prayer that you don't believe in and they don't believe either. This is a sensitive one, which is why it seems to me that the better you know people, the less you're likely to make mistakes in guaranteeing them something. Mm -hmm. I well remember a friend who got a brain tumor and he believed God was going to cure him. And so did his wife and they put it to their churches and it split the church. There were those who believed he would be cured and those who believed he, he wouldn't. It split the church down the middle and people left. He had a remission. So there it was, the unbelievers who didn't believe he was going to be permanently cured were wrong, etc. But then it came back again. And I went to visit him because I knew him very well. And I said to him, the thing was getting worse and worse. His wife still believed he was going to be cured. I said, have you prepared your children for the fact that you might die? He said, no, I'm going to be healed. Well, I said, I beg you to do that. He didn't. The net result was the children are left with a God that told lies and left the faith. You see, 
that kind of thing is so shallow. And I'm rem I remember what Paul says to us in Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit who indwells every believer as birthright when they trust Christ, dwells, says Paul, in your mortal bodies. No matter how much you pray, you're not going to conquer death. And so far better it would have been for that man to have spent his last days preparing his family and helping them to understand that the Lord might call him home. But he didn't. And so therefore, we have to be very careful before we make judgments like that. The Lord is going to heal the person or not. Mm -hmm. Well, this relates to the larger issue of the nature of evil or pain and suffering in the world. And in your book, you talk about the difference between natural evil and moral evil. Yes. Perhaps you can just explain why, what that distinction is and why it's important. Well, it's not an easy distinction. And what I mean by that is the frontiers are getting blurred. Let me give you a very easy example of this. Human greed leads to people destroying forests because they want to sell the timber. That leads to desertification. So it has an effect on the created world. It has a physical consequence that leaves people starving. So the moral evil leads to the natural evil. That is natural evil in a sense you've got a desert and it's not producing any fruit anymore. And it's sometimes very difficult to see the difference. Now, I believe uh, there are two examples of it. I've given you one from Luke, but there is another in the most famous book in Scripture on the complex problem of suffering and evil, the book of Job. And his problems were created, or more accurately, the problems for his family, uh, two sources. There were two raids that killed people. That's moral evil. But then there was a tornado and a fire. That's natural evil. So here we have two kinds of breakdown. Breakdown in human nature that leads to moral evil and breakdown in physical nature which leads to disasters and catastrophes. And the big question is, are they connected? And so far as the biblical record goes, they appear to be connected. They appear to be connected at the very beginning when humans first turned their backs on God and introduced sin in the sense of disobedience to God's word into the world. The consequence ultimately was physical human death. So there's a physical thing that's connected with a spiritual and moral thing. And what scripture tells us, now what we make of it may be a very complex issue, but scripture tells us that somehow the entry of sin into the world damaged the creation at certain levels. Thorns and thistles. It wasn't that there would be no food but thorns and thistles it wasn't that there'd be no work but work would for some people become toil and and so on and so forth and it seems to me that there started in those days a kind of river of damage 
that flows down and affects all of us. We didn't engineer it all. We were born into a world where this was already operating. And my own suspicion would be, and here's where it gets really complicated. Take a virus like COVID-19. It's a virus and it's deadly. But viruses in general, most of them, and there are thousands of them, are necessary for human life. We've got them living within us and without them we'd die. It's perhaps easier to see in terms of earthquakes. The reason earthquakes happen is because of the moving of tectonic plates. Now, the geologists tell us very clearly that that movement of the tectonic plates is absolutely essential for life. It regulates the oxygen in the atmosphere, amongst other things. So here we're living in a very curiously mixed world where some of the things that are necessary to life cause death. And that, of course, raises the old philosopher's problem that you and I know very well. Surely a good God would have made fire that would warm you but couldn't burn you. That, that kind of a question. Couldn't God have made a world in which um, human beings never did any wrong? And we've never been able to answer that question for a very simple reason, that when we've argued it through and through, we're faced with the fact that human beings exist and they do wrong. And both moral nature and physical nature break down. Mm -hmm. So we've got to go into this from another perspective or we're just stuck there. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a question uh, from one of the audience members. And I should say that uh, you can see on the chat that there's individuals from uh, Albania, the UK, uh, no, I can't various, see anything about where they're from. Uh, various states uh, in the U.S., uh, Philippines, India. So we really have Wonderful. an international audience. Uh, the one question asked by someone in the U.K., which I think uh, would be similar to uh, a question posed by people in other countries, and I'll just paraphrase it, is uh, we have uh, government leaders that on the one hand, we wish to support because they're acting in the collective best interest. And yet at the same time, we need to hold them to account, which then may be doing things that are against what they've instructed. So from a Christian standpoint, how, how do we uh, balance that? With great difficulty, with great difficulty. You know, I look in my country and I see that ministers in the government dodge questions and it's so obvious they're dodging questions. If we look at the comparative success of certain countries in dealing with this, compare New Zealand with everywhere else and it's quite clear. It would seem, unless I'm mistaken, that we just weren't ready for this. The, the, nobody believed anything like this could happen. And when it did happen, people didn't take a strong enough action. Now, in many countries that are democracies, uh, that are constitutional democracies, there is an opposition that tries to, to call them to account. And as well as that, there are the media. And we're having some fairly rough um, meetings every day at around five o'clock where the ministers appear and, and get a grilling. But how should we respond? Well, 
Paul lived at the time of Nero and I dread to think how we would react if today we were living in a country run by a Nero, although some countries are run by people that aren't far off from behaving like Nero. And Paul said to the Christians to pray for these people. And so I do. Uh, God has asked us to do that. And that sense of Christians, of course, in the New Testament, where Paul called for Christians to pray, that was public prayer. That is, Christians were not to be seen as acting as political revolutionaries, but were to be seen as supporting the powers that be, so to speak, which was not always easy for them. And therefore, I feel that we've got to take our um, cue from the instructions given to us in the New Testament, and it's all we can do. But all of us, we've got eyes in our heads and we've got ears, and we can compare the reactions of different countries. And it's so obvious, for example, in England, that Germany was far better prepared and was testing. And we are constantly told they're getting more and more tests, but we're way behind the curve. And the result is that many, many more people have died than needed to die from that perspective. And that, of course, is a huge tragedy. And I suspect that when this has died down, there will be a huge accounting to be done around the world. We haven't got to the end of that yet. And it raises the question for people in very senior positions and in politics and so on. It's not always going to be easy for them to maintain a solid faith in God and a moral integrity. But all I would say is this, there's constant in the times today, for example, we would rather be told the truth and to have the courage to speak the truth in a balanced way into a situation where, for example, you say to the nation, um, all these uh, PPEs are on their way, when they're not on their way, they haven't even been ordered. And it's tragic when politicians seem to be caught out now, what they know and don't know, I can't second guess. But it's not very impressive for the public to see their leaders lacking moral fiber and statesmanship and integrity. And if ever we needed leaders like that, now, this ought to be an encouragement to you, sir, because the whole purpose of your institute is really to bring these things out for discussion and to encourage the many people you're in contact with. Mm -hmm. And I do believe that those of you listening to me at the moment can have a huge contribution to make. You may not be running countries, although for all I know you might be, but your moral integrity is a very precious thing. And if you've got uh, the added dimension of a confidence in God, I, I am convinced that he can use all of us to influence far more people than we realize. I suspect that many of you, for example, are providing jobs for other people because you are executives. But you think of your workforce how difficult it is for some of them now. Now, if you can think through ways of helping them, they'll thank you for the rest of their lives because 
they depend on you. You've given them a job. You've done something marvelous for, for them, although they may not always thank you for it. And it seems to me there's an enormous um, resource among executive leaders who are integrating their Christian faith with their management and with their executive leadership understanding. So, so John, one key challenge for Christian business leaders and leaders generally would be, on the one hand, they wish to uh, uh, provide a Christian service and be difference makers. And yet, on the other hand, they would feel like they have nothing to give or they themselves are facing challenges where they're under severe financial pressure. They've had to lay off employees. They're suffering financially. And yet, they now have to have to, in a sense, serve others when when they feel they have very little in the tank. So, uh, what would you say to to those individuals in terms of uh, the value of you know just continuing to fight the good fight and persist and to carry on? Well, all of us have to deal with reality now. I often think, and I think I mentioned it at one of your seminars, that I've never really given employment to anybody except printers printing my books. And if you think of the track record up until this coronavirus struck, many of you have people who are very thankful or ought to be because they've got houses and cars and food and clothing thanks to the employment you created for them. And now that you've come into a very difficult situation, I, I think there's no real option to letting some people go. And that may be very hurtful, but if you go under, there will be no jobs. So how do you streamline in order to avoid that? Well, I know our government is providing certain things f far too late, but doing it furloughing people and making up their salaries and all this kind of stuff. And of course, from country to country, it's very uh, different. And I can imagine that many of you with different legislations, tax systems, laws, and all of that are facing huge mountains of problems. Now, all I can say, and it'll sound like cheap advice, is that we got to sit down and cast our care upon him. Now that's dead easy to say. That what I want to say to you is simply this. God is interested in the business you're trying to run. He's not simply interested in your church attendance, your Bible reading, or your prayer. He's interested in your work because he gave it to you to be part of your experience of him and his kingdom. That is his rule. So I believe that in a crisis situation, it's totally legitimate and right to get involved in thinking deeply about how what you believe that the Bible teaches you in terms of morality and, and love of other people, what it teaches you that you should do. So that instead of this being a problem to be overcome, it is 
a problem to be lived through. Now, what do I mean by that? Many years ago, I used to think that I would solve all life's problems by about 37, and then I'd really live when I got them all solved. And someone said to me, you have got it all wrong. I said, why is that? They said, John, solving the problems is living. Now, that may not help you, but it's a perspective that has helped me enormously. Because when a problem comes up, like the big ones nowadays for people in business particularly, one of the possible reactions is, oh, this awful problem, I've got to solve this before I can do anything meaningful or valuable. Whereas maybe the thing to do is to sit with your fellow executives and to say, right, how do we live through this? And what can we learn of God's provision and his guidance in this? And that means that the whole experience can be brought to God rather than waiting for it to be solved and then getting involved with God by going to church. So it's, I just see flashed up, it's in our work that we face reality. That's absolutely right. I can't learn moral lessons sitting in an armchair reading philosophy, but I can if I've got to give people work, absolutely. And I've got to do my tax returns and all that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I would certainly encourage you to ask yourself at this stage, what, how can I maximize my potential to help myself and others through this? Now, I have no easy answers. You know that. I'm not a businessman. But I do respect you greatly for thinking these things through and being prepared to do what you do in your ELO. Yeah, no, we appreciate your great contribution the last couple of years uh, to the program. And of course, you've been a very popular presenter. Uh, we have just a couple of minutes left and uh, a last question or two. Uh, how can Christians be people of hope? in these circumstances? Well, the central Christian message is that Jesus is God incarnate, come into the world. And we're around Easter time. And, you know, I raised the question in the middle of our conversation that we don't solve the, surely a good God could do this, that or the other. But there's another question we can ask, granted, We've got a mixed picture in front of us. I call it beauty and bombs or beauty and barbed wire or beauty and COVID-19. Is there any evidence anywhere that we can trust God with it? That would give us some hope, as you say, and I think that is, because at the heart of Christianity, there are two things, a cross and an empty tomb. And the cross on which Christ suffered, what does that tell me? Well, if that is God, it means that God has not remained distant from the issue of human suffering, but has himself shared it and become part of it. So in that sense, Jesus can weep, he understands. But the other side of it is that on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And that makes everything different because it means whether I live or die, it means that having trusted Christ, that he has taken the weight of the mess I've made in my own life and other people's lives and given me forgiveness and eternal life, that 
will not be beaten by the coronavirus. And that the promise to every believer is that one day they will hear the very same voice that Lazarus heard when he, Jesus stood outside the tomb and said, Lazarus, come out of there. And one day he will say to us, come out of there. And it's to give people that hope that I want to spend the rest of whatever days I've got left. Well, that's that's a great way to end the, the webinar and it ties in with your original response to the question about calling. Um, so I'd like to remind all the people watching right now that uh, John's recently published book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World, uh, is excellent. It's a quick read. I've, I've read it, of course. Uh, it's excellent. So definitely uh, follow up and Tessa will post the information. And uh, John, thank you very much for being part of this uh, live global conversation with people tuning in from literally all over the world. Well, thank you so much. And may I just add, thank you for listening and for your questions. Also, I have a big website, johnlennox.org, where you can see my debates and see many lectures and discussions from all over the world and many of the leading universities of the world on these big issues. And the book on the coronavirus, I think it's gone up today to language number 23. In some countries, it's available free as an ebook, where literature is not readily obtainable in hard copies. So thank you very much. And God bless you all as you seek to work in all your various countries. Thank you so much.